HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen in Zakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. My, my guest today is uh, Nils Norian, who is the founder of Absolute Culinary, which is a culinary consulting firm, and the former executive chef of COVID in New York City, as well as the former vice president of restaurant operations for Marcus Sam- the Marcus Samuelson Group. And he also served as vice president of culinary and pastry arts at the International Culinary Center. So it's quite impressive and extensive uh, experience in culinary fields. And Nils has been always interested in Japanese cuisine, and his culinary style has a lot of Japanese influence. So today, we'll discuss how Nils got into Japanese cuisine, similarities between Japanese and Swiss cuisines, and he, he applies Japanese elements to his dishes, and much, much more. But quickly, before we start, Japan Needs is available on Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. So please go to iTunes and Stitcher and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review on iTunes and Stitcher, and we really appreciate your feedback. And also, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let us know. And you can email us at japanneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or akikokadema.com. Now let's start a conversation with Nils Norian. Hello, Nils. Welcome to Japanese. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Akiko. So, um, so you are originally from Sweden, Stockholm, 
Sweden. And what kind of food did you eat when you grew up? Uh, I mean, I would eat very traditional Swedish food because that's mostly what was around mm. back then. Uh, there wasn't much ethnic food in mm. Sweden, uh, except there was quite a few Chinese restaurants. But, you know, <laughs> after working in China, I realized that they didn't really serve Chinese food, but <laughs> otherwise that is pretty much Swedish food. Right. Okay. So uh, what do you mean by Swedish food? Uh, Swedish food is, uh, what can I say, it's very rustic in a sense. You know, we do a lot of curing, pickling, you know, Sweden is uh, cold a lot of the times. Mm. So a lot of the, the food is based on preserving so right. that's where the cure and pickling and everything come in. It's a lot of stews and everything mm. as well. Interesting. Because Japan is also like that. It's been, uh, especially, you know, Japan is a very cold area, hot yeah. area. And uh, it was, the country was closed for 200 years. They had to preserve a lot of stuff. So yeah. there's so much in common. There is actually quite a lot of similarity in Japanese food and Swedish food. I think also in in the flavor profiles, because you use a lot of fish. You use, as I said, pickling, vinegar, sugar to a certain extent right mm. becomes sweet and sour right. uh, a lot and also in the simplicity of the food as right. well and also uh, both countries have a lot of fish yes that's the major do. resources and, and it actually also extends uh, further to design as well there's a lot of similarities in Japanese design and Scandinavian design mm. so less is more kind of simplicity yes. right that's interesting Right. So, uh, so how did you get into the world of food? So, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, you know, growing up, I, I saw myself as being a musician. That's what I was going to be. Oh wow! Uh, <laughs> you look like still. <laughs> yeah, I, I had um, I had actually a couple of reggae bands back mm. in Sweden, wow. and you know, we were performing and all of that. But at one point, I realized I'm not going to make any money off this. <laughs> uh, and the next day. Uh, I woke up and I was like, I want to be a cook. I want to cook. Hmm. And two, late, two weeks later, I was enrolled in culinary school. Wow. Um, so out of blue, suddenly... Yeah, I mean, I, I enjoyed cooking before, but I never thought of it as it would be a career. Hmm. But never. Except that one day I woke up and it's like, I want to cook. Oh, and wow. Two weeks later, I was in culinary school and I never looked back hmm. since. That's called the calling. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. So uh, so did you train uh, by going to culinary school or how did you? Yeah. So I went to culinary school, uh, very much uh, focused on cooking. Uh, it was a short program. Mm. Uh, so because, you know, I already went through high school and all of, all of that. So it was not academic in that sense. It was based on cooking. And it was also quite a long period of... Uh, internship as well mm. uh, so but but the the program itself was i think only eight months mm. or something right it's very intense and then yeah. you worked graduated and worked in sweden yes correct so actually i started working at one of the places where i interned and uh it was which was one of the first restaurants in sweden that got a star in Guild michelin so it was it was amazing wow. uh, restaurant to start working in mm. but you you are you actually joined that was uh, out of luck or you just already talented so? it, it wasn't out of luck because i did seek out that restaurant and actually i knew someone uh that worked there 
Mm. Uh, not that well, but still, right. I did. So I reached out uh, and I got in. Right. So it sounds like it's a Swedish restaurant. Uh, it's actually it's French mm. food. Okay. Uh, because back then, a lot of the so-called fine dining was still all about French right. food. But I, I did, after you know a few other jobs, uh, I did... Uh, I became chef for a, another uh, Michelin star restaurant, but actually the first one that got a star in Michelin for cooking Swedish food. Mm, okay, right. So then uh, what brought you to New York City? Uh, so uh, the restaurant, was, which I talked about last, uh, the owners of that restaurant, they were actually part of opening Aquavit in New York mm. back when it opened in 84. Right. So... You know, the restaurant did really well. We kept, you know, year after year, we kept starring in Michelin. And they were like, you know, we want to send you somewhere. And I was like, I'd never been to New York. I would love to go to New York. Mm. So they set it up so I could go to New York and spend some time at Aquavit. And, and I happened to meet Marcus Samuelson there. Right. He was a cook at that time. And we worked together for a week or so. Mm. And then, you know, we became friends. And, you know. I left and said goodbye and blah, blah, blah. And a few months after that, I get a call from Marcus. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, I'm the chef at Aquavit now. Uh, I would like you to come over mm-hmm. and work with me. And he thought I was going to say no. Polite <laughs> Swedish no, but I <laughs> happened to say yes. <laughs> and then, uh, and that was 95. And I think I got to New York in June. And then... Uh, Aquavit wasn't as busy of a restaurant back then, but we changed the whole menu and everything. And in September, we got a three-star review mm. in New York Times right. from Ruth Reichelt. And that's kind of the restaurant took off double in volume and all of that. It was kind of, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was crazy mm. as well. Right. I mean, that time there was no Noma and Scandinavian no. cuisine was... What? What is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Herring. Yeah. <laughs> so that was really the pioneer restaurant. Right. Okay. And uh, so, and you became uh, eventually uh, executive chef in yeah. 2003. Correct. Uh, so, that is amazing. Um, so, um, so, but what was your first encounter with Japanese food? So, my first encounter was actually with my very first job in Stockholm. Uh, someone that actually became a very close friend of mine. He happened to be uh, uh, one of the chefs that opened one of the first uh, sushi restaurants in Sweden. Wow. Uh, even though he was Swedish, but he <laughs> had, uh, you know, learned somewhat about sushi and, and such. So he got me into it. And he, you know, we would go to his house on the weekends and he would teach me how to make sushi as, you know, as well as we could. Wow. So it's actually pretty, pretty good. Mm. So that's how I got into it. And then there were a few Japanese restaurants in Stockholm that I'd like to go to. And then, But really when I came to New York, that's when I, you know, mm. you had so much more variety mm. of Japanese food. But I'm just curious that the first time you, you made sushi, what was it? Did you find something unique about Japanese food? Or, yeah, know? I mean, I don't, it was just so amazing. You know, I think, you know, the flavor, the texture, everything, this, I... It was amazing. It was so, so eye-opening. Mm, okay. Uh, so it, it sounds like this, you talked about similarities between Swedish and Japanese cuisine. So that's the yeah. simplicity and really focus on the flavor. Of- yes, exactly. And, and, and also, 
What I really appreciate in Japanese uh, culture and cooking is the appreciation of the ingredient mm. as well. Right. Yeah, I'm curious. Like, you know, Japanese restaurants tend to be more uh, divided or temporized, a tempura place, 100% tempura. Yeah. And uh, sushi is sushi. Yeah. So do you have any favorite genre out of those? Uh, I mean, to be, to be honest, I don't because it's, you know, one day you'll be... Uh, you know, I really want amazing sushi and sashimi. <laughs> or the next time it's cold day, you mm. know, you want, you know, great noodles. So I I haven't come across any Japanese food I don't like, mm. I don't appreciate. Okay. Yeah, that's a question because I'm curious as a chef, you know, there's certain techniques or some crazy mindset doing this over and over, so years yeah. and years. So, yeah, that's why I asked that question. But I, I agree totally. You want to hop around and then appreciate everything yeah. differently, right? So, um, so Kubit uh, was and still is one of the most recognized and great Scandinavian restaurants, I think, in the states and in the world, actually. So, um, so shortly after you joined Magus uh, in 1998, uh, I became executive in 2003. And uh, so, what kind of dishes did you cook at the Kubit? Did you have any? Um, you know, Japanese influence dishes. We had a lot of Japanese influence, actually, and not only in, in the food we cooked, uh, in also in the plateware and stuff. I think we we were probably one of the first, certainly not the first, but one of the first that really started to buy a lot from Corin. Mm, that's uh, a knife company. Yes, exactly, and they also have a lot of tableware and stuff. So, on my days off, I would go down to Tribeca and mm. pick up. Uh, you know, serving ware and plates and stuff, right. and bring back. Mm-hmm. And so, and then we used tons of Japanese ingredients, whether it was you know, kombu, you know, mirin, obviously miso, and a lot of other things. And we had a lot of dishes that you know. I remember one dish, for example, it was a we we called it back then when. We call it the Kobe beef roll or something like that. But anyway, it was thinly sliced Kobe beef. We filled it with a taro root puree. Mm. Uh, and then we made like a dashi broth right. with it. Uh, and then we had a salad of uh made mushrooms and something on top. But, but it was like the approach mm. and the flavors in that broth was very much right. uh, influenced by Japan. Mm. So it's not the sauce-based, it's more like how you enhance yeah. the ingredients flavors. Wow, that, that must be really good. <laughs> it, it, it was a very good dish. Right. Okay. Um, so so you used a lot of Japanese ingredients. Yeah, yeah, quite, yeah a lot, actually. Mm. What was your favorite? Uh, I mean, I, this few. I mean, obviously, miso, miso is very broad, but there's some amazing misos out there. And uh, I, I always really liked also the uh, the Japan, Japanese fish sauce as well. Mm, it's uh, ishiri. Ishiri, yeah. Mm, so which is which is made from squid, mostly, I believe. Right. Yeah. And it has such a has an amazing depth of flavor, and and what's kind of also interesting is from what I can tell it's it's done very much the same way as the Romans did their fish sauce garum like the Romans way way back the fish sauce was one of the staple ingredients in Mm. a lot of their cooking and that fish sauce was made very much the same way interesting interesting. yeah if you go to Kanazawa and Ishikawa prefecture 
and then just everybody's talking about ishii and basically it's um, uh, made with uh, squid intestines yeah. it sounds gross but it's really full of umami because it has a lot of um, uh, amino acid called uh, taurine yeah. and uh, I, I heard also it's like full of antioxidants so it's healthy and lots of umami and if you don't think of just the intestine it's it's delicious right and, yeah so yeah, I mean, we use sausages and the same same idea, but it's really, yeah, yeah I think it's such a proud product in Kanazawa, Ishikawa Prefecture, right? Okay, and I, I heard it's uh, fermented uh, for, well, it's, first I think it's uh, salt pickled yeah. and then fermented naturally for two to three years. So it's uh, the whole amino acid broken down. Yeah, right? no, it's a great product. Mm. Okay, and uh, so do you have any uh, Japanese techniques that you used? Yeah, absolutely. One technique that's actually probably my favorite Japanese technique is ikejime, mm. uh, which is you know the way to how you kill and bleed a fish. Right. Uh, and when I was at the ICC, International Culinary Institute, we did mm. a lot of experiments, mm. uh, me and Dave Arnold, on ikejime, right. and it's actually amazing when you do blind tests and blind tastings to see the difference mm. Well, maybe makes. some of our listeners may not be familiar with Ikejime. Maybe you can just brief it. Yes, yeah, so Ikejime is the way where you bleed the fish and also uh, you put up a usually metal stick through the spine of the fish mm. to kill any energy that's left behind. So what it does is obviously you get rid of the blood Mm. Uh, which makes it cleaner tasting. Mm-hmm. And also, when you put that uh, uh, metal rod up the spine, it the fish goes slower into rigor mortis mm. than it would otherwise. So you get a better texture and flavor mm. from that. And and one thing that, that people don't talk about enough either, uh, which the Japanese do, but not elsewhere so much, is it's really important to age fish the mm. right way and certain fish age different ways like you can have you know the, the, you can have for example people do it with fluke right they had it in Japanese restaurants where you get the fresh fluke they kill it right there mm. and serve it before it goes into rigor mortis and right. then side by side they serve a five day old fluke right. and I think actually the five day old always tastes better mm-hmm. right so by breaking down all those nervous system yeah. I, I heard that fish doesn't recognize that oh I'm dead so they don't get tightened no exactly it, they do it, they do get tight but they go slower into it mm-hmm. like every everything will go through rigor mortis but right. they go slower into it mm-hmm. right so the, for aging it's yeah. a cleaner taste and then it's kind yeah. of like texture wise it's more like softer yeah. natural right Okay, I heard uh, some uh, fishermen in this country started to learn how to do ikejime because yeah. it sells more expensive. <laughs> yeah, obviously it is more expensive mm. to do, but it makes a big difference. Right. Okay. And uh, have you done it by yourself? Oh, yeah, many times. Right, at the like, Yeah, wow. no, at, most at school. But even now, if I go out fishing, it doesn't happen that often. Mm. But when I do, I always use it. Right. Wow, I, I've seen it many times, but it sounds very difficult. It's actually not that difficult. Oh, yeah? Like it, it, you gotta know exactly where to put the right. the, the metal. Okay, but otherwise it's not that hard. Okay, yeah, because they're still like you know splashing and very violently moving. So no, it's not that. No? 
Okay. Yeah, maybe I should try one day. Yeah, you should. <laughs> um, so um, I heard that uh, you often develop a dish based on the shape. So I found it very interesting because Japanese cuisine has a lot of do, lot to do with the shape. And for instance, uh, sashimi is often plated vertically like a cone, and it, we call it the sugimori, mm-hmm. uh, meaning shape uh, shaped as a cedar tree. And or you may notice that there's a flow from left to right in many traditional Japanese dishes, which is called nagashimori, which is which means uh, flow plating. So, what is your idea of shape? Because um, they say in Western plating tend to be uh, based on symmetrical shapes versus Japanese symmetrical shapes. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, for for me, I've always been interested in design as well, uh, and and still am. So I, I think a lot in shapes, mm. uh, and and also like flavors. Not that flavors is easy. That's not what I'm trying to say, but. I, I'm pretty good with flavor, so when I think about a dish, I, also th- I keep thinking in shapes, but also in how each ingredient relates to each other, mm-hmm. right? Because the one thing that, that I, I have a hard time is when dishes are plated so it doesn't make sense. Like you have to cut something from one side of the pli- plate mm-hmm. and then move it over to the other side of the plate to get everything to to work together mm. so I always think in shape and how they relate each ingredient relate to each other and how you should eat it mm-hmm. very much actually like the Japanese for example like and I would that would do the same thing I would actually paint it from left to mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. in the order and, and how it makes sense so you get everything in every bite right so the functional natural yes. flow of actually eating right okay and do you think of that you know like say if you go to Japanese like kaiseki cuisine you know, they make a plate as if you're looking at the nature, that kind of thing. Yeah. Do you think of that too? I mean, maybe not as much of nature mm-hmm. as, as they do in Japan, but, but what I, I do really appreciate and what I do think is, you know, understand that the dish you have mm. is for the season, if that makes sense. And, and what I also appreciate with Japan is, you know, you don't think... And correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't think of seasons necessarily as four mm. seasons, right? There are much more. Right. In a sense, every month is a season, right? Because there are right. new things. This is 24 hours, something yeah. like that. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, but that's really interesting that you, your application of Japanese idea, it really is natural. So it's, it's just like you didn't try, you didn't, you just I, got inspired and you just... Yeah, but it's it's more that I found out later on that that's also how Japanese mm. cuisine is. Right. So I hadn't didn't even know that it was that connection mm. in the right. way I think about food right. a lot of the time. Mm. One thing I, I you know I, when I do this radio show, I'm learning constantly. There's so many things I didn't know, and I really appreciate being in New York. And then it's an inspiration. By, by looking at comparing different kinds of cuisine, you realize, wow, this has a meaning. And yeah. this is uh, the, the benefit of global scene of the cuisine, especially like places like in New York City or even uh, everywhere. Yeah, I mean, New York is amazing food city. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's why you're here. You've been here yeah. more. <laughs> Ended up 
been yeah. here for years and years. Yeah. Right. Okay, so uh, we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll discuss the idea of Japanese cuisine cooked by Western chefs. So please stay with us. program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters. Who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hey, like what you hear? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. With fresh programming every week, we've got something for everyone. Trying to start your own food business? Concerned about where your food comes from? Looking for the best wine or beer to bring to a party? Find our shows on iTunes or Stitcher, or head to heritageradionetwork.org to listen live and subscribe to our newsletter. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Nils Norian,、um, uh, who is the founder of Absolute Consult,、uh, Absolute Culinary,、uh, which is a cons-、uh, culinary consulting firm. And、uh, Nils is also a former executive chef of Akavit in New York City, as well as former vice president of restaurant operations for the Marcus Samuelson Group. And he also served as vice president of culinary and pastry arts at the International Culinary Center. So,、um, we've been talking about a lot of stuff, and you're now、um, you're one of the pioneer chefs who introduced Japanese elements to Western cuisine. And、uh, you see more non Japanese chefs using Japanese ingredients and cooking methods and plating in the, in the dishes nowadays. So, in your opinion, what is the relevance of Japanese cooking done by non Japanese chefs? I, I think it's very interesting actually with、uh, non Japanese chefs cooking Japanese、uh, because they, don't, they aren't as bound by tradition、mm. as Japanese chefs would be. And, but I guess if you would ask a Japanese chef, or especially someone that's older, they would argue that it's not Japanese cooking at all、uh, because they couldn't cook Japanese because they haven't grown up in that. But, but for me, I think it's. It, Actually, very interesting food that comes out that、mm. way when you're not bound by saying it does always have to be done this way or certain things always have to be done that way.、Mm. You know, I think it evolves the food. And, but I guess the question is like, where, where does Japanese end and, and start、right. in, in terms? And, and, you know, 
maybe you as, as, as the Japanese can answer that question <laughs> better mm. than me. But but I do think it's a really interesting food coming out. Right. Well, actually, there is uh, always uh, elements of fear. If you have tradition, right, yeah. breaking tradition, I think any European countries, any places without um, like that freedom of not having um, the obligation to follow the tradition. So yeah, but but I, I do think that Japanese, in many ways, are have a stronger how should I say, bond to tradition than mm. in many other countries, at least from what I can, mm. from what I can tell from my visits and to Japan and, and right. Japanese I, I folks agree. that I work with. Right. I, I think uh, there's a, I think uh, back in the mind, say, well, chefs or any other craftsmen, I, th- I think they, they tend to feel if you break the rule, it's kind of disrespectful act to whoever built it to perfection. So yeah. it's kind of like an oh, feeling of oh and uh, guilt. Yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 beautiful. But for instance, uh, uh, do you know Seiji Yamamoto Ryugen? In uh, he's a chef. It's a, he was trained very traditionally in Kaisei cuisine, and he has uh, uh, I think th- three Michelin stars. Yeah. And uh, well, I. Um, I saw his one of his presentations, and there's a fish called tahamo, like long, bony, uh, eel-like fish. And traditionally, you only train yourself so that you can just cut the bones without hurting your mouth when you eat it. But then he had a client who's a doctor, so he asked CT scan that hamo fish so that you can analyze the bone structure. Which never happened. So you don't have to train 35 years. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. So that kind of. Yeah, but and that's what I think. You know, goes back to I think a lot of things comes out of that when you're not bound by tradition, right. and when you can actually think of it in a different way mm-hmm. than a Japanese chef would do. Right. Yeah, I think uh, gradually, thanks to all those uh, inspiration from non-Japanese chefs, I think Japanese traditional chefs are more kind of evolving, not breaking tradition, but evolving. So I think uh, that's a great point that Western chefs are really interested in Japanese cuisine. Um, okay, so um, the other thing um, I heard, uh, so you're inspired by uh, Japanese-style austerity. So what part, of, what part of Japanese austerity is unique and appealing to you? I, mean, I think what's, what's so inspiring by Japanese hospitality is that it's, at least comes off this way, mm. but it's very genuine, right? And it's also all-encompassing, right? Like, you, you would feel it. Like, this really is a pride to serve someone. Mm. There's pride in it. You put, you know, all your soul and energy and everything into serving people, and that's really what the hospitality industry is. And I think that gets lost a lot of the times mm. in, in West, you know, whether it is here or in, in Sweden. It's not the same pride in serving mm. someone and dedicating your your career in life right. to service and it goes from you know it goes from the f- person at the door to you know the server to the cooks to the dishwasher mm. actually right. you know I, I remember when uh, when I saw uh, it was some TV show a long, long time ago. But when it was about some Japanese, I think, hotel or something. Mm-hmm. But when the dishwasher comes in with his own briefcase and still has a shirt and a tie underneath the uniform, it takes a lot of pride in mm-hmm. what they do. So 
because everything matters, right? From a guest experience, everything matters. Mm. Like if your plates aren't clean, if your pots aren't clean so the cooks can use it or cutting boards, whatever it might be, it's not going to work. It, delivering great hospitality only works when everyone works together and each element is as important to a certain degree to deliver that. Mm. And that's what I really admire and appreciate. Mm, right. Um, yeah, I think it's almost like uh, every everybody has a part and you have to be responsible for that part. That's not the mindset. Like starting from uh, school kids cleaning up the classroom um, by themselves, not the cleaning lady, you know, after school, to lifetime employment um, where you really are um, responsible to continue the life of this company. So that kind of mindset probably is related to the restaurant business as well. Yeah, and I mean, it really shows that. Mm. Well, what's your experience? Like, uh, did you go to one of those Japanese kaiseki places? I, I have been to kaiseki places in Kyoto. Mm. Yes, absolutely, which is which is amazing experience. But but you feel it even if you go to, to simple... Uh, I remember this, I... I think it was last time I went to Tokyo. I came in really late at night. Mm. It was like 11 o'clock at night or something. And I I just went outside. I was starving. Just walked outside the hotel. And there's this like stall open to the street. And these four older gentlemen, they do ramen, right? Mm. And they take so, such pride in doing it. <laughs> and how they serve it and everything. It's, it's amazing. Mm. Right. So it's uh, the craftsmanship, I think. Craftsmanship, but also like it's... they. They care about hospitality, mm-hmm. not only about their cooking, but the whole experience. Even when it's a simple ramen shop that's open to the street. Mm, right. I think uh, even if you go to convenience stores, there is a element of respect because yeah. I think there is a, no strong division between serving a person who's serving and being served because we take turn. That kind of assumption is all over in society. I think. That's why everybody takes a responsibility. Yeah. Right. That's that's my opinion. But um, okay. So um, another thing is Japanese hospitality. I think it's partly because based on the lack of tipping system at restaurants. So what's um, um, what do you think about that? I don't necessarily think it's the lack of tipping system, and everyone is equal. Uh, that can be part of it, maybe. But I, I think actually what the biggest part of it not always coming together as seamless in in west is that especially in the back of the house there's not enough hospitality training Mm. like when you go to culinary school they teach you how to cook and it was the same when i went to culinary they taught me how to cook which Mm. is amazing but no one taught me about hospitality Mm. and how to appreciate your guests and how to interact with guests or anything and I think that makes the overall experience lack a mm. lot and and I think uh, you know restaurant management teams have a big role to play when it comes to setting the right culture and teaching hospitality not only to your hostesses and your servers but also to the kitchen mm. and you know, and also, you know, we have to get everyone in the restaurant to be able to put themselves in the seat of the guest. Mm. 
to be able to say if if this was me sitting there and I got this food or I got this service or I get this dirty glass, would I be happy? Would mm-hmm. I be happy, you know, because I'm spending my hard-earned money and my time because time is also limited. So that's why, if, to me, like, you have to pay so much respect mm-hmm. to a guest because they have so many other choices where they can go and spend their money mm-hmm. and spend their time. And they actually choose to come where you are to do. Aye. And I think that's... That, I don't think everyone in the restaurant business realize that or think that way. Mm. But I think that they should to be able to deliver real right. hospitality. Mm. Right. So does the the goal for the team versus this division, that division. And I think tipping system, I think, is uh, slightly, uh, slowly changing, I guess. In this no, but I guess too. it's changing. I mean, I think what, you know, there the is... Certainly valid points where the kitchen is not compensated, rewarded the same way as the front of the house. And I think that's to some degree inequality. But that can be fixed, even though it's not easy and Mm. uh, it will take time. But I think more importantly, regardless, is that hospitality is taught to the whole team Mm. and not only the front of the house team so if you look at most restaurants you will have a pre-shift meeting Mm. and it will be all the servers and the managers and maybe the chef coming out but you will never see any cooks in the meeting and why shouldn't they because they're as important part of delivering Mm. the experience to the guests as the servers they might not be seen always or Mm. they might be if it's an open kitchen and that's why I think it's important And, and you know, to to one extent, if I go back to when I was uh, with Marcus Amazon Group recently, and, and you know we had Red Rooster, mm. and I've done this in other restaurants. You know, if a guest guest sends back a dish because it's not cooked right or mm. whatever reason, I will have the chef bring the food out Aye. to the guest when they cooked it the second time, mm. just because I think it's important for the back of the house to to have a guest experience and especially when it might not have been the best one Mm. to realize that there actually is a guest a person there and you can't you know you have to be transparent you have to take responsibility Mm. for that and i think that that teaches you to see the bigger picture of hospitality rather than just standing in the kitchen by the stove Mm. cooking and then handing it over to server right to deliver it yeah it's a great uh, source of motivation for the chefs too yeah because like what they mean they do is meaningful exactly but all and also take responsibility when something doesn't go right right exactly right and i i remember one time in tokyo uh while ago i went to a restaurant and then i asked so many questions about dishes and then i asked a bunch of questions to the server and they happen to be usually a cook and they take turn so I think, oh, that, yeah, yeah once yeah. a month or twice a month, that's my day. So he was like, like encyclopedia. And it was so much more fun and yeah. for him too and the whole team. So I think that's a great idea to experiment. Like I think a lot of restaurants started to, um, you know, uh, have cooks to serve at the table lately. Absolutely. But, but I really think it goes back to get everyone to understand what great hospitality is mm. and how it's delivered and it's only works 
when everyone comes together. Mm-hmm. I, I can agree more. I, so, uh, so by the way, I heard that you are now based in New York, but you also have a base in Singapore. So what are you working on right now? Uh, so I'm working on a few different projects. I mean, we have, I have a few uh, clients I work with in New York area, but then uh, working on a project in Jamaica, in mm. Port Antonio, which is a small boutique resort, wow. uh, which is going to be amazing. Uh, and then uh, currently working on a project in Bali as well, actually mm. on the beverage side wow. for a hotel there. And um, we also have a couple of projects in Singapore. So, mm. And, you know, in the past years, I have done stuff in Bermuda and London. So it's, it's interesting. You get to see a lot of different cultures and, you know, work different mm. uh, places around the world. Right. So your spirit of being open-minded and try to try something new is still here and that's why you came to New York in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. But I think, you know, experiencing different cultures and working with different cultures, different ingredients, it's that's really where you learn mm. the most. Right. Okay, so... All right. I mean, good luck, and I'm so. Thank you. I hope you you gonna know, keep us posted. You can come back one of those interesting projects. Absolutely. Okay. So, uh, so where can we find your update? Uh, you have any website or? Yeah, I mean, we have a website. It's byabsolute.com. dot com. We can see uh, more about what we do. Okay. And such. Sure. Uh, by the way, do you apply some Japanese um, principles to your consulting business? Uh, I mean, in terms of, of hospitality, and yes, certainly still when uh, when I work on menus and stuff, I, I do always, almost always incorporate Japanese mm. ingredients mm. one way or the other. Great. Because it's been such an important part of, you know, my culinary journey for mm. for a long time. Right. Wow. So I really admire what you do. I mean, it's just really important that somebody like you discovers Japanese cuisine, something special. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Akiko. Okay, so listeners,、um, if you have any questions or comments about the show,、uh, or suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at、uh, japanese at heritageradionetwork.org or kikokatema.com. And Japanese is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and Stitcher podcasts. And please go to iTunes and Stitcher and write a review. And we、really、appreciate your feedback. And today's show was made possible by Chefs Collaborative, Collaborative and、uh, In Jenny is David Tatasiore, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. 
Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. 